0: Welcome to the College Commons Podcast, passionate perspectives from Judaism's leading thinkers, brought to you by the Hebrew Union College Jewish Institute of Religion, America's first Jewish institution of higher learning. My name is Joshua Holo, Dean of HUC's Jack H. Skirball Campus in Los Angeles, and your host. You're listening to a special episode recorded at Symposium 2 a conference held in Los Angeles at Stephen Wise Temple in November of 2018. It's my great pleasure to welcome Mr. David Makovsky to the College Commons podcast. David Makovsky is a senior fellow and director of the Project on the Middle East Peace Process at the Washington Institute. He is also an adjunct lecturer in Middle Eastern Studies at Johns Hopkins University's Paul H. Nitza School of Advanced International Studies, he served as senior advisor in the office of the Secretary of State in 2013 and 14 working with the envoy for Israeli-Palestinian negotiations. David McCaskey it's such a pleasure to have you thank you for joining us. So
1: glad to be with you.
0: The first question I want to ask is one of the primary topics of your work which is the two-state solution. Depending on what I'm reading from your writings sometimes I get the sense that your support for the two-state solution boils down to a sense that it's the least infeasible option. Is that unfair of me? Is that accurate or partially fair?
1: I mean, I like to say there's just too much history and too little geography. (laughs) Uh, These parties live almost on top of each other. It's not like the uh, Israel-Egypt peace, where there was, um, um, you know, like 200 kilometers of desert between Israel and uh, the Sinai, between Israel and Egypt. The whole area, you know, between the Mediterranean and Jordan River is like 50 miles wide. And the question is, what is the demographics? uh, And how do you make the geography and demography to go together? I'm not a believer that you could solve this problem tomorrow. I'm coming out with a new book in 2019 with Dennis Ross. It'll be our second book together on leaders who took historic decisions. But it's basically also a call for saying that there is a decision not yet taken here which is to deal with the fact of ensuring that israel is both you know jewish state with equal rights for all its citizens and also a democratic state and so that kind of leaves constrains you in terms of what are your options Uh, if you want to maintain the the duality of zionism as foresaw by its founders and the, uh, the
0: crux of the duality being
1: both as, as you know that what i call the, the zionist proverbial airplane which is that both one wing is like that's jewish state of course with equal rights for all citizens and that it's a democratic state and that means also figuring out where do people actually live and then try to have borders reflect that in a certain way so i ca- came out with this new website which um we help people access called Settlements and Solutions. Where do the settlers actually live? How does that intersect with peace plans? And it leaves you, basically, you realize that 85% of the Israelis who live over what we call the Green Line, the post-1967 line, 85% live in 8% of the land, largely adjacent to Israeli urban areas. So the question is, is there a way to say, all right, You keep some of that and then but you give us, we don't call swaps, a territorial exchange. So what was once inside Israel, 67 gets gerrymandered into a Palestinian entity. And therefore, um, once you find out where does demography meet geography in the West Bank, then you you see that this is something where you have to strive to doesn't mean you, you could do it tomorrow. Um, I like baseball metaphors. And baseball, we, we try in the United States to hit the home run ball three times. Bill Clinton, 2000. Condoleezza Rice's effort in 2007 and 8, Annapolis and all the follow-on meetings between Abbas and Olmert. And then the effort I was a part of with Kerry, uh, 2000, Secretary of State, John Kerry said 2013-14. I think these were noble efforts. I admit I might not be objective about the third one, but... I think these were efforts to try to solve the conflict. But in baseball, whenever you swing for the fences, there's a chance you're gonna strike out. And so i am become more of an advocate of the solid singles, given that the, uh, the Venn diagram between these two leaders, Netanyahu and Abbas, are just do not overlap. And I mean, there, it comes down to five core issues. I mean, the, the issues are not exactly the same issues they were years ago. Things like water, for example, thank God for technology, that is not a zero-sum issue, so it's not in the top five anymore. So that's easier now than it was. But of the top five, you know, there's the borders, there's the security arrangements, there's Jerusalem, there's refugees, and there's, do you accept the character of the other side's uh, entity? Uh, I call that mutual recognition. Those are the five. And these three efforts, right, how they swing for the fences, was an effort to solve all five of those core issues. And the leaders each were willing to do one big thing, but they basically wanted four things in return for mm. their big thing. Mm. So if Abbas is the belief that, that the refugee issue is it was not going to just open its gates to the refugees because there is going to be a Palestinian state, and that's why we're doing this for that, partly no small measure. So he understood that. Netanyahu understood that more than he gets credit for in the American Jewish community, I would say, that on the land issue, it would be closer to what President Obama actually said. The problem was that for each of that one kind of ace card that they felt they were putting on the table, they wanted the four other things to go their way. And that's where the Venn diagram just didn't overlap. And I felt we tried the front door, the side door, the back door, the window, the basement, even the chimney. Mm-hmm. And in my view was that these leaders on those five for five just weren't there. And it wasn't just Netanyahu, it was Abbas too. And so going back to the baseball metaphor, my view is um, let's try to hit the solid single. Uh, let's try to do something that would be meaningful and give us, put us in a direction even if we don't reach the destination. But it would at least convince the publics on both sides that this is a real process, and it's not just kind of a talking process that people are just paying lip service to. That is really, I think, um, for me, what it was. What it was about was trying to find a way to get the publics reengaged, and to me, the way to with do a the, win, with a win, with something that they could say, "Okay, this is hard, but if the other guy does their part, okay." I'm, I'll do my part if they do their part. And I think each one of those, I, and I have some definite thoughts what the solid single is. Uh, but I think it's a way of trying to convince each public that you're dealing with their kishkas, you're dealing with their guts, you're dealing with their gut fears, their visceral fears of the other side. So I think in the case of what Israelis are worried about it's terrorism, it's incitement, it's a whole kind of peace culture, what are you teaching in the schools. And I think a way to address that is to say, the Palestinian authority is no longer going to pay relatives of their suicide bombers or people who perpetrate violence, um, you know, not going to pay them a stipend anymore. Uh, you know, that was running at three times the national average and was basically tenured salary for life. Because the message there is, if you pay to slay, you're not a peace partner. You're not in this to solve a problem. You're in it to perpetuate a problem. And I think that's an important message. And I, I had some very difficult conversations in Ramallah because I go there a lot. And uh, I said, this is not something Americans can support. I mean, you know, so... I think that's a big one. I think on the on the Israelis, you know, for Palestinians, their gut fear is land, is that, you know, if we kind of negotiate the pizza while you're eating the pizza, you know, that what is there going to be left to talk about? And if indeed 85% live in 8% of the land inside the security barrier, what Israelis call a fence and Palestinians call a wall, um what about saying you're not gonna add any new people outside that wall? Uh, And this way, you might not be able to implement a two-state solution tomorrow morning, but you are maintaining the viability of an idea in a real way to say, that's it. I mean, yes, within these, what we call settlement blocks, it's one thing, and there'll have to be swaps for that, but outside, no new people. I think that would at least send a message that you're keeping hope alive. Uh, So for me, the solid single is the best way to try to reach the two states, because I don't think, it's not like we haven't tried swung for the fences, we've tried three times. I don't think the leaders can do it. I'd rather do it in in pieces, but in a credible way that deals with the gut fears of both sides, and in my view, would energize the publics on both sides, that this is this is a real process, and they should get off the, the the out of the bleachers and onto the playing field because this is
0: genuine. It's to to avoid the uh, the perfect being the enemy of the good. Exactly. So, I get that. I get I get not only the rationale. I get the reasonableness of of the broad strokes that you're talking yeah, about. Here's here's the problem I encounter in non scientifically at the social level, uh, in my more conservative Jewish-American circles yeah. and my more conservative Israeli-American yeah. circles, Israeli-Jewish-American right. And it's the following. Uh, it, it's encapsulated in the word occupation. The two-state solution is, on paper, still the official position of all parties. Uh, if I'm not mistaken, you can correct me on that. Um, but in the last less than half decade, I want to say, uh, it has become part of the standard rhetoric of American right-wing conversations about Israel to cast aspersions on the word occupied and uh, to, to, to start creating a narrative whereby the whole idea of an occupied territory is a falsity. We don't, you and I probably, it sounds like we probably agree on the facts. I'm more concerned about the fact of the attitudes because those attitudes are spreading, they're gaining uh, steam in numbers and in sincerity of belief. So that the new narrative is getting written, and it is a narrative that opposes not the feasibility of your proposal, but the desirability of your proposal. You,
1: you make a very important point, and I don't disagree with you about certain trends. I will also say there's an, also an interesting counter trend, and I've had these conversations with uh, several, with Naftali Bennett. Uh, The Jewish Home Party. I don't always agree with Naftali, uh, but we have uh, we do have a you know friendship. I you know his view is I'm not like the right wing of the '90s that basically doesn't believe there should be a Palestinian authority. I it's a fact. There's no rolling it back. This is Bennett speaking. This is Bennett speaking, but he believes it could be contained to what we call A plus B, meaning the cities palestinian cities and the environs uh of those around those cities now that is 40 percent of the west bank so his view is i don't want to go in there it's theirs i'm not doesn't want the headache no don't want the headache let them run their own system i don't want to get in there when you say how are these cities going to link up we we could work that out but he you know so one hand he will say in a certain way they the uh the the spectrum has kind of shrunk in a certain way where in the 90s it was all there's no such thing as palestinians there's no palestinian authority i want to just get rid of this whole thing i want to just roll it back he'll say i'm not that i'm not the 90s that i've I've come more to the reality that this is this is here to stay my belief is that at 40 percent of the west bank this Palestinian Authority is not going to have a lot of legs, uh, you know. Right, because, either politically or in fact, right, I mean. exactly. Because even though a large majority of the Palestinians live in that forty percent, because they live either in the urban areas or in the environs, there's maybe only a hundred or two hundred thousand people outside there, and some of these are spillover areas right on the border areas. I, I don't want to get jargony with you. I mean, the A is the you know is the cities, the B is the environs, the big argument is over C. Over the sea area, which is neither the cities nor the environs, but the rest of the West Bank. And this area C has become like the new kind of point of argumentation um, where the Israeli position, which in a certain way you could understand at a certain point, is to say, why give slices of sea until we have a grand deal? I could accept that if Israel applied the same logic to itself, which is to say, You know, inside the barrier where the settlement blocks are. But the 92%, we're going to leave that open for negotiations. Mm -hmm. Uh, Again, my point is that the so what's happening is, in a certain way, you could say actually maybe there's a narrowing of difference in that the Palestinians are coming around to see that these settlement blocks or clusters inside the barrier near, adjacent to Israeli urban areas. They might not say it on a podcast, uh, you know, that that's all going to be Israel. And maybe not all eight will be, but a good percent of that will be. So on one hand, there's a recognition of the concept that the, these blocks, Malay Adumim, and these mm-hmm. places that many of your listeners I think have seen or heard about or visited. But my point is to say it would be more credible that you really want to negotiate if you say you're not building outside of that area. Right. so on one hand the Palestinians realize the blocks are here to stay and the Israeli right is saying that the a plus B
0: is here to, is stay. Here to stay there's some there's some there's uh, a more
1: of a narrowing than the, the public discourse uh in American Jews or, or the Israeli right acknowledges publicly the issue is really this area c area outside the barrier that's the real crux what some of us have been saying is, look, maybe there should be more economic access to some of these areas, areas C. But part of the issue is that each side is more aware that the other is here to stay. And that does calculate in, but somehow it is not percolating into a wider discourse, which tends to be more black and white occupation, not occupation. And, um, The argument is about the Area C, and if there was a grand deal, great. The problem is, is my incremental view is that we're not near a grand deal right now. Now, the president might put forward his plan uh, in 2019. I tend to believe, unlike what the media says, I think... Because every few months, he says, oh, it's coming, it's coming. I tend to think it'll be after the Israeli election, because I think he see he's working sees, with. yeah, he wants to see who he's working with, and he also doesn't want to hurt Netanyahu, because some of the stuff, I think he may surprise some of the more liberal Americans that he would say on East Jerusalem. I mean, he feels he's gotten a, a certain rap, you know, because of the embassy issue. So I think he, he wants to reverse some of that, but I don't think he wants to do it before an Israeli election. So he's going to raise some of this. I just have a doubt that any grand deal with these two leaders is going to work because I right. think the gaps are just too wide and I think on some of these issues he's also
0: taking positions that I don't I don't think have a chance to succeed unless unless he's doing it um, in a, a Machiavellian way I don't mean that totally yeah. negative yeah. I just mean in a calculating, right. appropriately right. politically right. calculating way to to then pull back precisely as you're saying mm-hmm. A, um... But the problem is that he is, he tends to see, it's
1: like, there's the ultimate deal. I don't want to play small ball here. And I mean, it just, if you've been at this for a while, you got to kind of differentiate between what is attainable now and what isn't attainable now. And I just worry whenever it's all or nothing in the East, it's nothing. Yeah. <laughs> and I feel that that is detrimental uh, because it's, it, it perpetuates stalemate and it, um, You know, that stalemate could lead to greater polarization and, I worry, to violence.
0: Before we return to the podcast, we want to let you know about digital learning on the College Commons platform. Beyond this podcast, which is available to the public at large, check out the online courses at collegecommons.huc.edu for in-depth learning, digital syllabi, assignments, inspiration for teaching, and one of our most influential courses called Making Prayer Real. Subscribe with your synagogue for all this and more. Just click sign up at collegecommons.huc.edu. Oh, and one more thing. Help us out and rate us on iTunes. But whatever you do, do not give us five stars. Unless we deserve it. Now, back to our podcast. When it comes to the negotiations, um, there's a lot we never know. I think there's a lot any party never knows. But there's a sense in a given, in a given period, some days we feel like the greatest uh, challenges are internal to the two sides. And sometimes we feel like the greatest challenges are between the two sides. Do you have a generalizable uh, feeling on that or is it episodic based on the conditions? Look, the parties have really not sat together since 2010 in a realistic way,
1: with face-to-face. And, and, and during the Kerry period, we were basically meeting with each side separately. Although there were some joint meetings, but not at the leadership level, mm. the leader, the negotiator level, but not on the leaders haven't really met since 2010. That's a long time. And, uh, and now it's... Each side is dug in. And so, as I was trying to say about the five-for-five some of these the issue differences are very uh, distinct, and I, that's why I'm so skeptical of a grand deal. Um, but, yeah, but there's also internal questions as well. They're, they're yeah, not mutually exclusive. I mean, look, when you look at the polling data, let's put it this way, about half of each public, it might be a little larger on the Israeli side, say, do you want a two-state solution? They'll say yes. Yes. Right. And then they ask the second question, but does the other side want it? Oh, then? No. So right. will it happen? No, never. So there is an element here of um of disbelief. Uh that I think this culture of disbelief, and that's why I'm for the, right. the solid single, because I think we have to break it. And I worry again when it's all or nothing, it's nothing. There's also different other factors going on. I mean, you're you're when you raise the internal issue, like you know, to your question, I mean, there's there's a issue here where people would say, yeah, look. Ideally, we would want uh, the, there to be two separate entities, but for the Jews, it's good enough. The status quo. Right, and status quo that, is sustainable for some. It's sustainable, and it, it because you see the economics where Israel is thriving. Thank God in many ways. It's its economy, its infrastructure, outreach to countries might vote against Israel at the UN, but China and India, and even the Gulf Arabs are are involved in this. So that gives a certain message that, you know, that it is very sustainable. Uh, and the US has been saying since 1967 it's sustainable. See it's sustainable. But the point that might not be sustainable, I think, is, you know, when people don't have a right to vote and uh, in a certain area, that is going to, you know, you don't want to make them Israelis or else you're gonna have a binational state. And binational states are not the solutions. I mean, if you look around the Middle East, look at the countries that have multi ethnic states are the ones that have the civil wars.
0: Right. Well, Lebanon. Lebanon is the. Syria. Syria. Iraq. Those three. And even but, binational states, I mean, like, what's a binational state? Uh, Belgium. Right. Belgium's a binational state. Not, all right. Well, not, they,
1: are, they they speak the Okay, maybe they, they speak Flemish, but they don't have the history, the recent history. They've all kind of bought into the but idea even they, that, I'm agreeing with you yeah. I'm not,
0: I'm, they're not thriving as a country no I mean, no no and,
1: and they're but Belgium on that spectrum is it, would
0: be a success would be a
1: great success I mean basically I think in the Middle East the part of the issue is that the primordial loyalties of these people are largely to their religion and their ethnic group sure and when you tell me we could bring you know Pakistan and India back together <laughs> give me a call You know Uh, what I mean? Then I'll talk about that we're beyond ethnic states. I don't see it in that part of the world. I see that these this idea that you could paper over these ethnic, deep ethnic differences doesn't work. They might have a flag. They might have a soccer team. But that doesn't mean they have a, a, a system of citizenship that makes them believe that they are Iraqis before they're Shia or Sunni or that they're Lebanese before they're uh, Shia, Sunni, Christian. Um, and here you've got an overlay of terrorism. You've got an overlay of, you know, of, you know, of, of, uh, you want to call it occupation or you want to control, whatever word you want to use, Hebrew, right. Arabic. They don't have any shared experiences for any part of the day. I mean, it just, it strains the mind to think that somehow... You could just subordinate all this. It's just fascinating to me that, like, journalists will use the phrase. And each side means 180 degree different. They'll say, oh, they each side says they're for one state. They say, wait a second. Right. What do they mean by one state? The settlers, when they say one state, that means Israel controls everything. Okay? When the Palestinians say one state, that means there's no Israel. Right. It means, right. you know, that it's, it's and, the word Gaddafi, Isretin, you know, israel <laughs> Palestine. The term is a misnomer, because they mean 180 degrees right. in the
0: opposite direction. Right, right. It's a, you're you're failing to distinguish where there's a real difference, and right. they. That part I get, and that's. That applies to the Arab and the Israeli non-intersection. Right. However, there's the internal Jewish non-intersection of the term of one state and two state. Because when the right wing says one state, they mean one thing. And when the left wing in Israel, Jews, say one state, they mean another thing, which you were alluding to, the binational state versus... And I don't know exactly what the right wing version of a single state would look like. I mean, I, I can't imagine that the right wing would assume the same sustainability that they currently assume. In if they fully annexed um, Arab majority populations, because surely that would disrupt stability and diminish sustainability much, even. That's that's my
1: argument with Naftali Bennett, is that basically he will say, look, A plus B. 40% Forty percent of the West Bank is theirs. We're not going in.
0: Forty percent of the West right. Bank territorially, but what percentage of population? Do it's a large
1: in? percentage. That party's right, but first of all, you got to link these yeah, cities. Right. I mean, if, if every time guys go through their slap in the face and then the idea that any authority that has no chance to, you know, have, I think the West Bank as a basis is is sustainable. I think is op- is to be charitable a very open question. I mean. The the people have looked to the PA, they're people that they're going to be able to get the large majority of the West Bank. If that is not doable, I don't know if the
0: PA could survive. So I guess a lot hinges on the upcoming elections, which will take place when, do we know?
1: We don't know yet. In Israel,
0: uh, we think the prime minister wants to
1: move it up because he's doing well in the polls. Um, You know, some people talk about the spring. Could it be early summer before Israelis scatter? Because they often, many go to Europe, so you can't really do it in the, in the heart of the summer. Then you got the Jewish holidays. Otherwise, it's been, it'll, the, the time is November. We tend to think, um, I tend to think he would like it before March, before the, which is what I'm told when, uh, uh, by a very senior person that, Police would an- announce
0: certain indictment issues. Oh, right. Okay. Yeah. So that, that brings us to another major topic yeah. and one that we hear a lot from from the left, yeah. both in Israel and among American Jews, which is the rule of law, the status of uh, of jurisprudence and uh, the judiciary. I should say yeah. in Israel. Um, do you see the erosion that um, that I don't know? I don't know if centrists and right wingers feel this, but the left, center left, certainly does. Look, there's no doubt that I
1: think, to go back to my airplane analogy about about the proverbial wings of Zionism, it was even true in a, to a degree in the, the second and third rounds, the, they call it Netanyahu 2.0 and 3.0, when he had center-left parties inside his government. And he liked being the pilot, where there was people to his right, a wing to his right, a wing to his left, and he could navigate the airplane. But uh, he was losing the 2015 election and a week before his advisors came to him and said, listen, you're going down. You know, you could maybe convince people that you've got the solution to lower housing prices in the greater Tel Aviv area, which was Kahlon, which was one of his rivals. But you've been in power for six years. Unlikely that's going to happen. Or you've got to cannibalize the hard right and get their voters and the only way to do that is to persuade them that you will not do Netanyahu 2.0 and 3.0 where you have left of center parties. He followed that advice. It was advice that was crucial for him to win, but I would say it crippled him as a leader to actually govern because he was handcuffed. He couldn't have... That, that equilibrium. That equilibrium, exactly. And the cost of this is playing out right now, you know? And that, I think, is a, it's a mistake and, you know, when I...
0: You know, and so you're referring to the power of the far-right parties, including yes, religious parties yeah. that are imposing their agendas, yes. which are very different, right. but he has to bow to them. Right. Look, I, I am personally modern
1: orthodox, but I know that without a vibrant reform movement, a vibrant conservative movement, the whole Big Tent approach that was been fantastically successful in the Israel-Diaspora relationship Cannot repeat itself by definition. Going forward, it can't. It won't
0: work. Uh, we need the big tent thinking. That big tent, because uh, because of the constitution of the Jewish people, that we're, we're constituted of right. a variety that needs to be attended to for right. the sake of the right. viability. I of the mean that
1: this is this
0: isn't. It's not just
1: an Israel diaspora issue. I would argue this is a national security issue for Israel. If you lose big chunks of the diaspora, you know what. what does anyone think you're going to get $38 billion MOU memorandum of understanding that Israel just got under President Obama for the next 10 years? Um, it was that partnership, which on the Soviet Jewry movement, one, I think one of the great successes of the Jewish people in their history, where you had American Jews united around a, a Jewish human rights issue and made it part of the superpower equation in, in all and detente, and all different phases of the superpower relationship that led to over a million Jews getting out of the Soviet Union and largely settling in Israel. I mean, these are fantastic successes. And largely since post-67. And it's the golden age, in many ways, of the Israel-Diaspora relations. And my fear is, if this shrinks to just, I don't know, Orthodox Evangelicals, this is this is we horrible. all lose. Even everyone even, loses. Everyone. Israel loses. Look, one of the great successes of Israel has been that there's been bipartisan support for uh, for the state of Israel. Democrats or Republicans can't agree if it's light outside or dark outside, but they have been able to agree yeah, in support for Israel. If you don't have a big tent with more liberal-minded people, then you're not going to have a bipartisan Support it. I worry about that. And look, look at the US Saudi relationship today, which is basically just in the Republican Party, for the most part, if you go to their dinners or anything, it's just Republicans. And you don't want the Israel, the US Israel relationship to look like this in 20 years. Yeah, everyone loses. And the truth is, if you talk to Israeli national security people, they will tell you quietly, not publicly. This is a bigger issue for them than the Iran nuclear question. I know that sounds hard to believe, but they will say this to you privately. Like, this has been the formula for success, is broad support in the United States. Netanyahu is a very bright guy. You can like him, not like him. And Israelis think he's navigated, for the most part, they look at the economic success, infrastructure, staying out of the Syrian civil war, and a lot of different pieces, they think he's been successful, for the most part. They question him on the Palestinians. Half a lot of people do. Some like what he's done and some don't. My point though is that this coalition with the Ultra Orthodox, at the expense of kind of going back to the proverbial Zionist airplane of the parties the left of center and the right of center sitting together, plays out immediately in the United States because it alienates large swaths of American Jewry. And it's a mistake. It's a mistake for Israel, not just for Israel diaspora, which I believe in itself is something
0: that you should care about deeply, but it's for Israel's own national security. On its own merits, yeah. On its own merits. All right, I want to get personal. You go to Israel. Where is the place that um, you referred to Kishka's? What, Where in Israel does it touch you? Does it give you the uh, goosebumps? Do you go and um, you feel uh, that powerful connectedness
1: i look it's it's you know i think for every jew when you go to the western wall and pray there it has you know you you kind of feel you're in you know in the great presence of jewish history i'm writing a book now with uh, dennis ross on four leaders who took courageous decisions uh in israel's history and because we want people to believe people think the problems are too big and the leaders are too small not getting the specific names but um and there were people who rose to the occasion and there were some dramatic moments in Jewish history that have been in our lifetime and I I remember when I was 8 years old right, a year after the 6-day war going to the wall and then it wasn't that big plaza like it is right. today it was, it was much was cramped, smaller it was yeah. cramped and everything but you 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 had a even as a kid you felt like you know this was a, this was a this was a great privilege to be in the presence of something that has this resonance so I mean I think that you know for me that's clearly a, a place uh, that you know I mean even when you see the Knesset for all the screaming and of uh, mm-hmm. all the parties and people could get very depressed but to know that um, you know that there was you know that there is such a thing as as, as as a as a democratic deliberative body where Jews and Arabs sit together maybe they yell a lot at each other mm-hmm. but they make decisions, and I tell you, I was in Poland this summer for the first time. I'd never been to Poland. I was always, always with trepidation. I've, I've been yeah. all over the world. One country I deliberately didn't go to because I felt that, like, if you go to that country, you really gotta have someone who knows knows his stuff could take you around because it's it's like a it's a ghost land for Jews, where over there were three million and now there's virtually none. Um, there's a very small remnant, and to realize that. When you're there, you really see the idea that you know that the you know the powerless Jew was the defenseless Jew, and that was how this this horrible Holocaust occurred. And you say, th- thank God there is an Israel today that could take in a million Jews from the Soviet Union. I, I had taken the first member of Knesset to Ethiopia when I was the head of the World Union Jewish Students, and there's a there's a thriving Ethiopian Jewish community. All these communities that were persecuted. They now have a home, and I realize Israel's not just a haven, but it's supposed to be a homeland. But you, you, you know, if you, if you're at all, or a, even a casual reader of Jewish history, you, you kind of feel you're in the presence of something that is truly profound to see a society that, for all of its difficulties, it had less than, you know, seven hundred thousand people in 1948. I mean, I was just rereading the transcript uh, from my Ben Gurion chapter of. What Yigal Yadin, who was the chief of staff in 1948, they were debating whether to delay statehood. And uh, and he says to Ben-Gurion, he says, Do you know, 30 to 40 percent of our troops don't even have any weapons. 30 to 40 percent. <laughs> no weapons. Like not a pistol even. Nothing. So when you think how far the state has come in a short time. Very short. And now they're just under 9 million people. Over way over uh, six million Jews and uh, and uh, there's Arabs and there's others and the there it's just it's a remarkable remarkable moment how far the state has come in a short time so I always say the resilience of the people when you see what they what the state has achieved and with all its enemies jihadi's all types. Ultimately, I'm optimistic that I think Israel's will to live is greater than its enemy's will to die. And I think in the more literal sense,
0: i Am Yisrael Chai. Well, here's to uh, Israel living up to its promise then and to all of us being a part of, of a shared success in the Middle East right. and in the diaspora. Thank you, David Mikowski, for taking right. the time. It was such a pleasure to talk right. to you. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the College Commons Podcast, available wherever you listen to your podcasts or at the College Commons website, collegecommons.huc.edu, where you can also stay tuned for future episodes.